0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show Podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show: an update on Sewergate. But it still smells. China is not happy with the U.S. weighing in on Hong Kong. A lot of chatter about what will happen if we don't hit our climate change targets, but not a lot of talk on how we get there. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, another marathon session of council apparently lasted till 3:30 a.m. Uh, Councilors decided to apologize to the public and release some of the documents pertaining to the Shadok Creek sewage spill. Uh, is this enough to contain? Well, it looks like the sewage has been contained, but uh, boy, there's still a lot of. Uh, A lot of stench in the air, you might say, and people are not happy. Larry DeAnne is with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, on the line now. Larry, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Your thoughts on the apology and the release of documents that we're seeing now? Too late? Too little? Too late? Uh, Well,
1: it's certainly too late um, because, um, you know, the the, uh, controversy has uh, now taken on a, a life of its own. Uh, but at least uh, better late than never, I think, is uh, you know what we say uh, in these circumstances. So uh, much of the information is going to be released. Uh, the only one that's being held back, according to the news report that I just read, uh, is um, matters involving solicitor-client privilege, uh, so as not to jeopardize the ministry investigation, or at least not to further jeopardize the city vis-a-vis the ministry investigation. Uh, but as well as... Um, you know, the environmental uh, issues uh, seem to have been contained. Uh, the Medical Office of Health indicates that uh, no uh, health risks have been uh, de- determined by their investigations. That's good news. Uh, but my goodness, uh, you know, the council was there till 3.20 this morning, and it seems to me um, you never make good decisions uh, at that time of the morning. Uh, I don't care who you are, and it seems to me that Nerves have been frayed and relationships have been broken, and that perhaps will be the biggest victim, uh, at least short-term, hopefully not long-term, uh, that will uh, come uh, as a result of this misadventure.
0: How ironic is it that uh, what they were trying to prevent from happening has actually happened anyway?
1: It has, and that's why, you know, when we spoke yesterday, I talked about a communications plan, right? Right. And it seems to me that everything—they must have been listening to us, Scott, because almost everything that— <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah, I know. But everything that was suggested yesterday in terms of laying out the facts, giving information to the stakeholders, neighboring municipalities, RBG, uh, BARC, and, you know, anybody that has a, uh, an interest in, in the environmental issues there, uh, residents, people recreate there, the needs uh, needed to have been rolled out— uh, and then the general public as well um, or as well as all of that the general public of course uh, and and that's what they seem to be putting in place now uh, and it could have been done um, a year ago it could have been done even more than that because now we're learning and in fact I spoke to a uh, a former councillor who no longer is on council who had been briefed uh, on this spill uh, even before this council took over so seems as if a lot of the information has been available and it could have been rolled out in an orderly way. They're doing it now and that's good. I I worry about the financial exposure, of course, uh, but I worry about the relationships because councils uh, need to be, need to trust each other. Even when they disagree strongly, they need to trust that they, uh, that they respect each other's positions. And uh, from what I've uh, uh, from what I've read, uh, it looks as if that has been fractured right now.
0: Why do you think that is fractured?
1: Well, you know, uh, uh, councillors are talking about uh, being in tears, accusing each other of being the, uh, the 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 ones who leaked the information and
0: denying
1: that. And uh,
0: let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, delve into the whole thing about the leak and how this information got out.
1: Uh, well, so so I, I don't know how it got out. Uh, But as I said yesterday... But apparently uh,
0: that's what happened? This was allegedly leaked to the Hamilton Spectator? Apparently. uh, That uh, the reports, two reports, in fact the Spectator has written about this. Yeah.
1: Two reports were handed uh, the Spectator. And these are a couple of reports that are not being made public, by the way, because they must contain some of the uh, solicitor client uh, information. uh, And that's how they found out and and wrote about it. and, And the rest is now... Hamilton history, Mm -hmm. Uh, so somebody handed it to them. Now, who? Maybe it was a staffer. Maybe uh, it wasn't uh, a counselor. But uh, who knows? That that, and that's the problem with these things, right? Because everybody is is suspicious. Believe
0: me, we've all had uh, those in the media have had the brown manila envelope show up at the door with information in them. It's very bizarre. Uh,
1: uh, You know exactly, and so. And the media likes that, of course. It's stories for them, and they're important stories to tell. I mean, there is a public interest in this. Um, I've, I've got to tell you that from people that I speak to, uh, they shake their heads at it, but they're not overly alarmed, which is good. In other words, that there isn't a sense that oh my goodness, you know, uh, it's a love canal and people are you know dying and and getting ill and so on. And so that's reassuring if people feel that it's still controllable from the public health perspective and that's corroborated now by, by statements that public health is making. Uh, Hopefully that will be substantiated. I guess too, what
0: what people are saying, I think as far as the health concerns, Larry, it's like, it it may be fine now because it's all stopped and contained, but what if you were jumping and splashing around in the, in these waters when this was all going on? I mean, that's. Well, absolutely.
1: Although apparently signs were posted there and, uh, and although the harbour has come back uh, a whole bunch, I'm not so sure whether people should be splashing around uh, just yet um, in any of these locales. And that's, and that's all uh, to say that, that we need, you know, we have done a good job of reclaiming these waters, uh, and, and that's the tragedy of this spill that occurred over four years in such voluminous uh, uh, volumes that that uh, you know it's it's a, a whole bunch of steps forward and some steps back, uh, and that's that's the 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 tragedy as well. Of course, as the public now feeling that they've been underinformed or not informed at all, and some counselors uh, indicating that indeed that has been the case, and that's why the apology uh, is happening as well.
0: And, and and i think as we said yesterday i think that's why people are angry about this i mean accidents happen and, and what have you and 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 you address those and move forward i think it's the cover up here and and again how do you build that trust back i mean now well, again and, considering what has happened and over time it's just my goodness it just seems like one black eye after another
1: yes and of course there are counselors uh, uh, quite a few counselors are saying that it was not a cover-up it was simply uh um, you know, uh, choosing the time to responsible information. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, you know, uh, we live in a skeptical world, and, and uh, do we believe that or is that spin? Um, I go back to what I said yesterday as well, that really the council, um, as as a council, um, had no reason really to, to cover this up because it's not as if they didn't do something, didn't approve something, yeah. didn't allocate enough money have caused this it was an accident pure and simple and they were heeding advice legal advice that said be careful don't be reckless with what you say but as again not to repeat uh, uh, but the communication plan that they put together now should have and could have been put together then and that's the real tragedy here that somebody wasn't thinking ahead looking around corners at the possible ramifications of withholding information without Um, thinking about how this would look once it came out. And that's the tragedy, really.
0: So uh, what about the timing of all of this and the the timing of withholding this information in around election time and such? Uh, I think that's another reason uh, citizens are a little skeptical of all of this. So
1: so people, you know, have have connected those dots. Um, I am not sure that that those dots um, merit connection. Although, again, uh, you know, if you're trying to be uh, skeptical and and uh, and suspicious of governments at all levels, uh, you might say, uh, as people have said, certainly online uh, in social media, that this was purposely kept away from the public before the election. This and the Red Hill stuff were both kept away before the election.
0: Um, You don't don't you don't buy that?
1: No, not really. Look, staff first of all um, does what staff needs to do, irrespective of any of the political processes. And uh, and it was staff that was recommending, um, not saying anything. It wasn't council that said, uh, you know, we're given something by staff and they decided not to report it. It was staff who said that. And they're believe me, they're apolitical. You know, at the end of the day, they don't care who gets elected. Um, I mean, privately, they may have some opinions about um, uh, which people they like, and which people they may not like. But, but in terms of their job, they work with whoever the taxpayer and the voters send to council. So they're not going to engineer something for a political purpose. Uh, I just don't buy that.
0: Why do you think people are so angry, Larry. Well, because we live in in
1: very angry times, and and you know the media to some extent has a role to play in terms of fanning uh, these flames of anger, um, and uh, and that and then and councils make mistakes, um, and so rather than understanding that these errors might occur, especially when they relate to public health and environmental issues, uh, which are top of mind these days, and that's a good thing, um, the public just. Uh, uh, tends to be very angry. And then uh, you get the role of social media, which amplifies the anger uh, and people pile on for all kinds of reasons uh, and trumpet, you know, their feelings on social media that's picked up by by the media. And it just makes it seem bigger than it might actually be. So there is reason to be upset and disappointed. Uh, but there's also reason to understand that over the decades, council has done the right thing. Many councils have done the right thing in terms of reclaiming the, these waters and bringing them back to health. Um, and so we should put those things in some balance as we criticize council for not getting it 100 uh, percent or even 50 percent right in this case.
0: Uh, your thoughts on the apology. Does that now not open council up to these uh, uh, to litigation they were trying to stay ahead of?
1: So, I mean, no, people who are angry are still going to be angry, regardless of the apology, because they'll say too little too late. And even the apology seems to have a little bit of hair on it because, um, you know, are they apologizing uh, because they didn't report in a timely fashion? Are they apologizing uh, because it happened? And and there seems to be uh, people arguing both sides of those. Yes, I'll apologize that it happened. Uh, but not that we've covered it up because we didn't cover it up. I mean, those statements have been made. Um, and so I guess an apology is better than than nothing, and it might satisfy people. It might show some good faith, uh, and I'd like to look at it that way, but there will be people who
0: will not accept it. Will this change anything? What do we learn from this moving forward?
1: Well, it will change some things for sure. I mean, they also approved hiring five people at 500000 Dollars a year, additional expense that we'll have to pay for as taxpayers, but those five people will now be responsible for looking at infrastructure um, such as this that was not looked at at all. It was only monitored uh, through computers, I understand, from reading some of the articles in the paper, and so now you've got some people whose responsibility will make sure that if accidents will happen, and, and surely they will, but they'll be picked up. It won't take four and a half years to find them out, and I think that's good
0: uh how do you win that trust back
1: is, is, is did
0: time heal all wounds here how, how do you move forward with this well
1: no i think time does heal people will forget other issues will come up uh you know uh so council's uh, job will be to do a good job uh, moving forward uh, remember the issues of transparency uh, moving forward uh and uh, accommodate uh, people's uh, needs as a community uh, which means, you know, make sure that the snow is cleared when it snows, that the grass is cut during uh grass cutting season, that we provide good recreational amenities, that we keep taxes uh, to a reasonable extent, that we provide good opportunities uh, um, for the citizens of this city to enjoy life in this great community. And if council does that, my prediction is that in uh, three and a half uh, years' time, when there's another election, uh, or three years' time, I guess, now when there's another election, the only ones uh, that will be talking about this are the uh, ones running against the
0: incumbent. <laughs> uh, Larry DeAnne has been with us, former mayor of city of Hamilton. Larry, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We certainly know about the ongoing tensions between China and Canada and as well with the United States as they tried to hammer out some sort of trade deal. Uh, The Huawei CFO uh, obviously still being held in Vancouver uh, in in, uh, limbo with all of this, along with the two Michaels. Uh, Now, China is not happy with the United States in regard to uh, the United States and two bills that have been signed at supporting human rights in Hong Kong. Donald Trump uh, supporting all of this. The country has now summoned the U.S. ambassador to protest the bills. To talk more about all of this, Eric Miller is with us, president of the Rideau Potomac Group and CGAI fellow and is with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on. Scott. Uh many have criticized including me Donald Trump for the antics and the theatrics and everything that goes on south of the border, but I've heard some say that his position on China has been accurate in some ways. Would you agree with that? What how would you how would you describe Donald Trump's dealings with China?
2: Well, in many respects Donald Trump has changed the narrative and there were many people who had concerns about China but they didn't Uh, come together or they weren't publicly voiced. And so what you've seen as the Trump administration has taken in particular a harder line on China on the trade front, you've seen many of these concerns bubble to the surface. And you've seen the latest action being, of course, uh, the measure that he signed with respect to Hong Kong human rights.
0: Uh, What would that conversation have been like between the U.S. ambassador and China once summoned?
2: Uh, The Chinese would have let the U.S. ambassador know that they were very displeased with what they see as their interference in the internal affairs of China. Uh, Hong Kong has a very particular status from the handover agreement in 1997, where it is to be administered on a so-called one country, two systems model through 2049. They also have uh, what's called the basic law, which is meant to guarantee fundamental human rights and democratic rights uh, that, uh, that underpins ha- how Hong Kong governs itself.
0: Uh, considering what is happening in Hong Kong, what does this do for the public's view of China on the world stage?
2: Well, the, the view of China on the world stage is really darkened. First of all, you've seen several major rounds of leaks uh, of internal Chinese government documents uh, detailing uh, in chilling terms how they are running their internment programs in Shenzhen in the uh, western part of China with the the Turkic uh, Uyghurs. You've seen uh, a number of statements of discontent. And uh, Hong Kong has been a real challenge to President Xi. And you saw the record turnout in the local elections where the Chinese, uh, mainland Chinese-backed uh, parties were essentially decimated in the elections. And so President Xi is having a hard time with the notion that all of these people just aren't willing to go along with his program. And so they're going to lash out at the U.S., for supporting this, but it all uh, underscores the really deeper problems that China has.
0: How does China process what happened in those elections you were speaking of?
2: Well, some of the more paranoid elements will say, well, there must have been foreign interference. Uh, the other ones will take it as a signal about which they, uh, uh, they don't really want to say too much. But this is all coming together at a very interesting time. So we talked about the U.S. legislation. Well, this comes right as the U.S. and China are edging toward uh, what is reported to be a phase one trade agreement. And mm-hmm. Trump had one of the things in Trump's negotiating style is he never misses an opportunity to put his opponents, particularly his opponents he doesn't like, in very awkward situations. And so by signing the legislation... Uh, Trump has essentially said to the Chinese, you have to suck it up and and go along with this if you want to have a trade agreement. And so the Chinese find themselves in a terribly difficult situation where they're facing uh, another big uh, hike in tariffs in just three weeks' time that the U.S. may or may not pull back, in which the phase one agreement was meant to deal with. But if they lash out too hard on Hong Kong, then there's no deal signed and a whole big group of their export products gets uh, hit. And uh, made much less competitive in the U.S.
0: market. So, Don, does Donald Trump have the advantage here um, um, as as he moves forward with this? Does he obviously he believes this is an advantage for him in the trade talks? It doesn't set the trade talks back.
2: No, and and if you look at Donald Trump politically, we're less than a year away from a presidential election. And for Donald Trump, signing a trade agreement with China is arguably less advantageous than not signing one. If he signs the agreement with China, then he has to go to the public and explain how it solves all of the problems which he has systematically laid out over the last three years. But if he doesn't sign it, then he's showing he's hanging tough. It is not going to be rolled by the Chinese. And so in many ways, I don't see this as a great awakening in terms of Donald Trump's human rights consciousness. I do see this as a very (laughs) shrewd play on the part of Donald Trump to put the Chinese in a difficult position and make them decide whether they want to yield. Because the U.S. ultimately has the upper hand uh, in this because the Chinese need access to the U.S. market. The problem with the U.S. and other Western countries, frankly, has been uh, the ability to focus and follow through a consistent strategy over time. And when countries fail to do that, that's when the Chinese are able to really press their advantage.
0: So this is more art of the deal than it is human rights?
2: Very much so. But uh, the U.S. has often used human rights in that way.
0: Uh, is China surprised that Donald Trump spoke up against this?
2: Uh, I, I think the Chinese are surprised he signed the deal. They made all sorts of uh, statements about how terrible that would be. Uh, You saw similar statements made by the Chinese ambassador in Canada about uh, Canada following a similar path or using the so-called Magnitsky Act on Chinese officials. And so the Chinese are often surprised when uh, people actually follow through. But part of what's been so challenging for them with the Trump administration is Trump is, is an unorthodox fighter in many ways. He's not somebody who's easy to peg and easy to predict what he's going to do. And so by embracing human rights, he both looks good on the streets of Hong Kong and also puts China in a very challenging position.
0: Uh, Many thought uh, uh, that this was, or many have said that this is China's century, uh, that as they move forward and progress, uh, they will become the most dominant. Is that a given here, considering the stumbles they're having now?
2: Uh, These things are never a given. It's ultimately about uh, what what countries do in their policies and where they decide to uh, to spend their resources? Uh, certainly, what you see is a great deal of discontent within China about Xi Jinping. You wouldn't have the leaks if you uh, if you didn't have that situation. And there are many that are uh, that are concerned about him declaring himself to be the undisputed leader for life. And at the same time, uh, you have the U.S. that's going through its own. Uh, periods of changes and upheavals. And so, uh, obviously, uh, if, you, if you follow the literature on the so-called Thucydides trap about great powers destined to clash, if the U.S. and China were to have a military confrontation, that would very much change the balance, because what made the U.S. the dominant world power in the 20th century was World War I, ultimately, and then mm. reinforced by World War Two. So, events matter here
0: uh everyone viewed china or many viewed china in the last several decades as the golden goose everybody wanted a piece of it everybody wanted to do business there how has that changed
2: well fundamentally people are worried about traveling to china the two michaels have underscored to canadian business leaders uh the risks associated with china but fundamentally we're getting to a point where uh china it's not like you saw like you've seen in the debate where we must not engage with China or we must engage wholly with China on their terms. It's more of a, a nuanced situation. Mm. And so, what you're seeing evolving in the West is a view that here are areas where we can cooperate with China. Here are China's interests. Here are how their interests cl- uh, clash with our interests. And here's how we get to a point of reconciliation. And so, it's not that we don't trade with China or we give them everything they want, it's about understanding how they trade, how they negotiate. And then coming up with strategies to ensure that uh, our own interests are reflected in these particular negotiations. So I would call this process uh, a maturing that you're seeing in the relationship with China, hmm. and a uh, and a disappearance of the illusions. But at the end of the day, China has one sixth of humanity within its borders, and you have to find a way to deal with them. Hmm. But it's not their way or no or no way. It's it's uh, their way and our way finding a point of reconciliation that both can live with.
0: Will climate change pull these worlds together? Uh, Because we all know where China is on that and what is needed on their part. Will that force us to, over and above trade, how do we deal with issues like that?
2: Well, certainly uh, what you see in in China now is they are positioning themselves uh, as a leader, and they're doing it both for global prestige purposes, and they're doing it for uh, economic purposes so they have very aggressive mandates on the uses of uh, electric vehicles for example and so they but they're also doing that because they want to be the standard setter for electric vehicles and they've also pushed uh, companies like gm to change their fleet mix to to much more favor electric vehicles uh you see on the building sector you see aggressive pushes by the building community uh, the architects the engineers and so on in china toward uh, lower emission buildings now big opportunity for canada there and you talk to folks like the mass timber institute in toronto uh, to export tall wood buildings from canada to china and actually the quebec government is working with china on putting up a, uh, a skyscraper in shanghai that's made out of canadian wood so there will be opportunities for cooperation but on the policy front the u.s has to figure out what it wants to do on the climate front Uh, and how that can reconcile with China. But the problem with some of the climate regimes that you've had so far is they've given China more of a pass because it was seen as a bit of a developing country. So again, this will be a more more equal relationship that you'll see between the different parties. But in the meantime, China's trying to get ahead of the curve and figure out how to make a lot of money off of the so-called green shift.
0: Will they be the leader in this as they are in high tech?
2: I uh, were betting where the standards for global automobiles will be set unless uh, North America finds a way to get its act together uh, on the, uh, the green vehicle front, uh, they will be set in China because when you, they're already the world's largest vehicle market. And when they say by 2020 that 10% of the new vehicles sold in China, and they did about 18 million units last year, will be electric vehicles or advanced technology vehicles. That's sending a big, a big signal, and that means that 10% gets repeated over time. So all of a sudden you get 10, 15 million electric vehicles on the roads in China, and those who are supplying those vehicles, those that are servicing those vehicles, are going to want to be there because that's where the critical mass of vehicles are going to be. So instead of arguing about uh, what, we, uh, what we want to do about this, part of it is we need to learn from China and get a bit, of, a bit ahead of the curve Uh, in certain areas where Canada can dominate. And that's where something like Tallwood Buildings, where you take good Ontario, Quebec, BC, Alberta forest product, uh, manufacture it in Canada and sell it to the world. So these sorts of opportunities we have to grab onto because that's what the Chinese are doing in their own yard. And I give them full credit for it.
0: Hmm. Uh, getting back to Hong Kong. Um, many thought when, uh, China, uh, uh, resumed control of Hong Kong, that China would learn from Hong Kong and China would become more like Hong Kong as opposed to the opposite. Obviously since, uh, the takeover and out of UK hands back into China's, uh, slowly, uh, those in Hong Kong are, are, are feeling the strangulation. Uh, where is this going after months and months of protest, uh, but how does this finally come to an end? How does this resolve itself?
2: Well, that's not exactly clear. But I think the one thing you can likely predict is that Hong Kong will emerge from all of this. And as I say, there's some sadness, a diminished place. Uh, the, what I hear from some of the large corporates is that they're looking at how do we ring fence off our China business that's currently run out of uh, out of Hong Kong? and so you'll likely see companies moving operations uh, into shanghai and beijing potentially but probably shanghai to service the the china area and then the asian regional headquarters will likely go somewhere like singapore and so the sad thing is that uh, as a place hong kong will likely be diminished but in terms of the protests and the upheaval uh, that remains to be seen and you're going to have a lot of white knuckle moments as this uh, pro-democratic uh, group of local lawmakers who have the legitimacy of having been elected by the people uh, seek to push their agenda forward. Uh, I uh, I think it's going to be a very tough situation, and what the U.S. legislation has done is massively raise the stakes in terms of China's use of military or paramilitary uh, police force in a very large way. And so China's options were few already and they're becoming fewer and uh, they're hoping that the protests will find a way to burn themselves out but now that uh the pro-democratic folks control the institutions of local government they will be a much more direct threat to carrie lam who is the beijing appointed administrator of hong kong and uh and so i you know i think it's hard to say right now how this is going to play itself out but you know like Poland in the early 80s and all of this, we're going to be seeing history made on the streets and in the legislative councils day by day.
0: What does a successful Hong Kong look like in China's eyes? How does China justify what's happening in Hong Kong and its loss of economic stature? I mean, they can't be well, happy with that. Here's, here's a place that, that, that's just uh, uh, flourished for so long, they take it over and look what happens.
2: Well, for them, uh, China's number one motivation is control of its territory. Because if you dig back into Chinese history, national unity and particularly uh, the fragmentation between the southern regions and the northern regions has been a key feature and concern. And so uh, Hong Kong is a great asset for China to have. But slowly over time, they've been prioritizing the integration of Hong Kong. Uh, into what they call the greater Pearl Delta region. So Shenzhen across the border uh, becomes very closely linked, the link is up with Macau. And um, and a lot of the businesses, uh, you start seeing uh, a shift slowly toward uh, Shanghai. And so this is a process of osmosis. But at the end of the day, if the wealth and vibrancy that Hong Kong's generated over time has uh, disseminated to some to shanghai some to uh, to uh, Shenzhen and so on uh, that's something that they can find a, a way to live with and and so keeping Hong Kong special is not what they want. they want to get the benefits of controlling Hong Kong, but mm. for them, the fundamental piece is party control of they, what they see of, as their whole traditional territory of China.
0: As I mentioned, many thought that uh, that China may ease its stance under the new uh, president. Under, under its current president, it seems that it has taken a harder stance. Do you see that changing?
2: No, because uh, so Xi Jinping has done some interesting uh, things, and in even including pushing the uh, re-examination of Confucianism. So you went through this whole period in the 60s and 70s in China called the Cultural Revolution, where everything old was thrown out. But uh, Xi Jinping has the idea that Confucius praised uh, respect for authority, and so you've had a re-emergence of older Chinese symbols, and he is positioning himself very much in the mold of the traditional Chinese emperor. Because fundamentally, communism as an ideology is dead. And so if they have no overarching ideology, and it's been uh, 70 years since the People's Republic was founded and everybody who was part of the so-called revolutionary generation has died off, what possible basis do they have of legitimacy for uh, their regime? And so they are looking to uh, place their regime in the heart of the of the Chinese tradition. So you see a lot of movies set, uh, set in the various imperial times. And the whole message is that, in essence, Xi Jinping is a continuation uh, of the older Chinese tradition and that the population should give deference to the emperor. Thank you very much.
0: Hmm. Eric Miller has been with us, president of the Rideau Potomac Group. Fascinating discussion, Eric. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we've talked about climate change quite a bit on this show and and where it's going, how we get there. Uh, and and it seems um, you're either on one extreme or the other. There doesn't seem to be a, a center here. There doesn't seem to be uh, a solution. Uh, there, there just seems to be a lot of hysteria. How do we take that hysteria and turn that into something productive, a solution, and start moving forward with this. Uh, A a UN report out again uh, this week saying that we all need to do more, that levels uh, will have to increase in order for us to hit our targets. And we hear about this from all the political parties, but even when I ask them what the next day will be like, very few can offer uh, any sort of explanation uh, of what the transition will look like in the next 10 years as we try to reach these targets. What does it mean to the average citizen? What does it mean to you and me? How will our lives change? How will it how will it alter the way we move around, uh, heater homes, uh, all, all that sort of thing? How much is it going to cost us? What does the future look like moving forward? Again, we hear lots about the big, uh, the big ball bursting into flames if we don't do what we have to do. But very few are actually telling us what life will be like on the journey there. Hopefully we can find out more. Michelle Leslie is with us, a sustainability expert and contributor to ENI Daily and on the line with us now. Michelle, thanks for the time. Much appreciated.
3: Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: So, uh, I'm sure you heard my preamble. Uh, mm-hmm. Lots of chatter about what we have to do. We have to do this now. Shut off the taps. But nothing about what the transition will look like. Politicians, very mum, playing cards close to their chest, uh, even when it comes to explaining policy around this. Am I valid in the point that I'm bringing up that, that people just aren't clear how we're going to get from point A to point B?
3: I don't know if it's that in so much as I think that we don't there are different outcomes depending on how much success, if you will, will have in meeting those targets. Right. Um, and, and we know what happens if we don't meet the targets. But I, I think part of at least I found for myself initially when I started, you know, studying this and really getting into it, one of the things that I found challenging was so how does it relate to my life? What does this mean for me? Does Mm -hmm. it mean that because climate change is going to increase global temperatures and farmlands will be stressed that the price that I'm paying at the grocery store is going to double or potentially triple? Um, Does it mean that I'm going to have to fork out an extra 20 to 30% to heat my home or maybe to get to work? Uh, Does it mean that I can't live in a certain community because of potentially rising sea levels or shifting ground? So I think that... In the argument, I think a lot of time what's missing is that, as you mentioned, that relatability back to the average us who are sitting there in our homes and doing our everyday lives and going, okay, so how, what does this look if we don't get there? And then reinforcing why we need to get there. And And one of the things that I wanted to mention was, you know, and this is coming out of Europe, and I don't know if you've seen these reports coming out, but they are now able to prove through research a connect between even things like antimicrobial resistance to climate change. So climate change is is currently and will continue to impact, it's safe to say, all facets of our lives.
0: So is it again, what does the journey look like? How is it going to affect? And again, I appreciate what you're saying. But basically, all we're hearing is, well, forget about that. This is what's going to happen if we don't do anything. And, 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 And I don't think that's cutting it for people. I think people want to know what the journey will be like from point A to point B. I think we do know. Uh, And and we're certainly getting lots of scientific data that says what will happen, what could be the possibilities if this does happen, how it will change life, how it will change the environment, how it will change the way we live. We seem to be able to discuss that, but we don't seem to be able to discuss how we get off fossil fuel and what that transition will mean to you and me as we move forward, because every expert I've talked to has said this is anywhere from a 15 to to 50-year process. So what is that gonna look like?
3: So the first thing that I'll say is you know within whether you're looking at fossil fuels or nuclear renewables there's tons of innovation happening right and I think that that's a really good thing because what that means is everyone's on this same journey together whether you're a traditional energy source or you're a more disruptive source everyone is trying to get us from point A to point B while minimizing the impact. Um, I think that the journey for people looks something like there's going to be a shift in potentially um, economies, communities, and, and let's be honest, what people do for a living. And we've seen some of those shifts in the past throughout history, right? You know, we don't go to work or school by horse and buggy anymore. Most people take public transit or have a car mm-hmm as we look towards more electrification. And let, let, me interrupt you,
0: let me interrupt you there, Michelle, and just while I have this mm-hmm. thought, and please excuse me, but uh, you know, all of those things that you're describing in the past were all a part of a trip to progress, a, thr- a trip through progress. Life was evolving. Life was getting better. I believe with this technology, we can do the same thing, but we don't see the end result as moving forward. You know, when, when we're transitioning from the buggy and the horse to the, to the automobile, yeah, there was skepticism at first and blah, 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 blah. But as the technology advanced, so does society. Is that not what's going to happen here? Because it seems, be, it seems to be positioned as we're going to have, well, to, to quote Elizabeth May, a warlike effort, uh, a sacrifice, we're going to have to move backwards in order to get there whereas the you know the industrial revolution and everything you're talking about those were slow advancements now obviously people people are are not necessarily happy with change and that takes time but in the end life got better and i'm sure i'm sure at the end of this i'm sure at the end of this journey life will get better too but again the transition period from the horse and the buggy to the car did, wasn't described as hell. Whereas I think this is the way this is being portrayed. And and again, what I'm trying to get to the bottom of is what is that transition going to look like?
3: So, uh, first of all, I don't think we should look at it as hell. I mean, I think...
0: For, but that's how it's being positioned right now. It's We've got to do and, this now. Maybe, we've got to do maybe this maybe now.
3: That's, maybe that's the problem with the positioning. Because even if you look at the horse and the buggy to the car, that changed people, right? If you were working in a shop where you were making harnesses or you were making buggies, all of a sudden you weren't doing that job anymore. All of a sudden you had to get different skills and take on a different job because that's where everything was moving, right? In that direction. As we look at now, AI is a huge driver in this transition, right? Mm -hmm. Artificial intelligence. I don't have the skill set to work in that. That would mean that if I want to, I need to be retrained. So I think the transition for a lot of people is going to have to look at how versatile and flexible are we going to be to adapting these new technologies into our lives. And in some cases, in some communities, it's going to be different jobs. Yeah. Right? And and I think part of the reason why no one can tell you what the the transition outcome is is because I I think that we haven't yet set on a pathway, a concrete pathway forward. We don't know. And I think if someone said, okay, so here's what we're going to do, Scott. We're going to do A, then we're going to do B, then we're going to go do C, and then we're going to get to D. We would all go, oh, my God, okay, I get it. I may not like part of that pathway, or I might go, oh, my God, that's going to mean that I need to go back to school so that I can get a different job. Who's going to help me when I have the cost of childcare, mortgage, and everything else? But I don't think that a form, I think there's a lot of ideas out there right now, and I think that's amazing, but I don't think a formal a to b to c to d or whatever letter or number system you want to use has been introduced i think it's there are different things we have to do to get there but no one's quite grabbed you know the reins and said this is exactly what we're going to do i think that there are if you look at the picture of industries and what governments are doing on a provincial and even the government on the federal level there are programs in place that are trying to to move this transformation along Um, And I think that some people are definitely already seeing it and feeling it. But I think that it is a process that, you know, that really hasn't been concretely laid out yet, because I think people are trying to grapple with all of those outlying elements and how they all play together. Right. Because we know that climate change isn't just about a shift in the daily weather patterns. It's about our health, our infrastructure our communities, our workers, our industries that drive our GDP, it's all of that, right? So how do we kind of pull all these big things apart individually and tackle them so that we can set people up for success?
0: Do you think governments could be doing more to communicate this? Governments could be doing more to uh, communicate what life will be like, or is that a disadvantage to them because it will involve sacrifice?
3: So I'm a big believer that communication is everything, right? I think the, the clearer your communication is with people, they may not agree with your point of view, but then it's, they can understand, they clearly understand, you know, where the bus is headed and what they need to do in order to be successful, right? So I definitely think there can be an improvement in communication, especially I think when we talk about climate change, you're right. We throw around numbers and and scenarios and things that could happen and sea level rises and ocean acidification. But if I'm a fisherman in New Brunswick, does that mean that my salary is going to drop by 50% because I'll only be able to be out on the boat at half the time? You know, what does that mean for me? And, And I think that part of understanding the transition is understanding what those impacts are, right? And then going, okay, in order to stop this, this is what we need to do. We need to you know, invest in this energy project or we need to relocate this community here or we need to invest in this type of infrastructure. It's going to cost Canadians this much money, but this is what will happen as a result of these investments. And I don't think that a lot of those dots are probably connected clearly enough.
0: Michelle Leslie has been with us, a sustainability, uh, sustainability expert and contributor to uh, Any uh, Daily. Thank you so much, Michelle, for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
3: Thanks so much, Scott. Have a great day. All
0: right, you too. Take care. Let's bring in uh, David Aiken, Global News. Uh, just done a, uh, a recent column on this. Honesty in accounting is missing from every major party's climate change uh, policy. David Aiken is with us now. David, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, no problem, uh, David. My point in all of this discussion: um, lots are you know recent UN report out. We got to do more. Uh, here's the target we have to hit. Uh, Canada not set out to, to to hit it at this point. Um, I think we all know what the targets are. We all know what life could be like if we don't hit those targets. Are we spending enough time talking about, or do we know, how we're going to get there and what this means to the average Canadian moving forward through the next 10 to 20 years to 50 years to make this transition?
4: Uh, fair amount to unpack there, Scott. But let's start with uh, the first things. Um, We do, from a political standpoint here in Canada... There is a unanimous agreement among the major parties holding power in Queen's Park, in Ottawa, in Alberta, in B.C., that climate change represents a serious threat to the planet. Mm-hmm. And Andrew Scheer himself said that in the campaign. So we're all agreed on that. There was only one party on offer in the last federal election that would disagree with that statement, and that was Maxine Bernier's People's Party. Right. They didn't win a seat, and they won what, 2% of the popular vote? I mean, So everybody's agreed on that. And here's something else that the two major main parties, conservatives and liberals, agree on, that we have to, Canada, has to fulfill its international commitments under the Paris Accord. That was signed just after the last, the 2015 election, and that commits Canada to reducing our combined greenhouse gas emissions by 30% compared to 2005 levels, and to do that by 2030. Now, there's other parties that say we got to go, faster we need to do more we gotta cut our emissions even further than that and that's fine that's an argument to have but the point is the two major parties liberals and conservatives agree on that target right and there's no part of it that we should do less okay so we got some agreement on a couple of key points now the question is how do we get there and so what happened this week is this uh, group called the eco fiscal commission and they're an independent commission they don't get any money from any government uh... have a relatively small budget you know million and a half bucks a year it's a group of economists from all across the country, from the University of Calgary, from McGill University, um, here at the, in Ottawa, at the University of Ottawa. And they're economists. So they're presented with a problem. Want to hit those targets in 2030. And we want to be revenue neutral. With whatever we do, we've got to make sure that our plan uh, doesn't become a cash cow for the government or doesn't cost the government anything. So if there's carbon taxes, we've got to make sure we're taking in carbon taxes and handing it right back out. And if there's subsidies for industries to help them get greener, we've got to make sure that we're not raising taxes or going into deficit. So those are the two things these economists said, we're going we're to make some plans and look at some ways to get there. Mm-hmm. And they came up with three packages. One is the package that the federal government and now and the federal government and B.C. and Quebec have, and Ontario used to have when the wind government was around, and that is the, uh, sort of a carbon pricing program. Um, and then they looked at saying, okay, we recognize there's some politicians out there that Doug Ford stepped forward, no carbon tax, no how, no way. Can we still get to our climate change reduction targets or our greenhouse gas emission reduction targets, um, say, uh, in a system where there's no pricing of carbon? And the economists said... Yeah, we can do that. If it's all regulation, it will require subsidies, government subsidies of certain industries. And, in fact, if you want to do even more specifically what Ford and Jason Kenney in Alberta like, which is we're just going to focus regulations and subsidies on big emitters, on the polluters, uh, energy industries, uh, coal plants, etc. If we just focus on that, yeah, we can still hit our targets, too. But, and here's the big but, these are economists. They're looking for the most cost-effective way to do this. And if you do that third route, just focus with regulations and subsidies on emitters, A, you're going to choke economic growth. B, it's going to uh, it's cost the taxpayer even more. Corporate and, income, corporate and income tax, personal income taxes, could rise by as much as 7% by 2030 if we do it that way. If we do it sort of where we have industry regulation across the entire economy, so all, um, all industries are subject to regulation but also may benefit from some subsidies there will be cost to that too. income taxes might go up two percent three percent and economic growth will not be as good as it could be but if we go to a carbon tax and rebate program and that's the program the federal government has it's a carbon tax and rebate program that is the most cost-effective way to do it believe it or not less distortions on the economy uh, economic growth actually keeps on going and there's it, it it pays for itself in that carbon taxes are collected when people use carbon, and then it's redistributed in the form of rebates directly to consumers. So carbon it's tax has carbon tax
0: carbon tax has been designated as the way to go. Uh, that being said, what does that transition look like? Are politicians telling us that?
4: No. So during the last election campaign, right now we have a carbon price of twenty dollars a ton. And under the federal plan, it's going to go up to fifty dollars a ton by 2022. These economists saying, okay, in order to have a meaningful effect on people's behavior, to get industries to adopt new technologies, to invest in new technologies, just to spur R and D, we're going to have to have a price on carbon of two hundred and twenty dollars a ton by 2030. That translates into essentially an extra forty cents on a liter of gas in, uh, compared to today in 2030. Now, of course. Let's let's assume that you know we we have seen some industry projections. We're going to quadruple, quintuple, whatever. That the curve is just getting going on the purchase of electric vehicles. So there'll be a lot of Canadians who aren't driving vehicles that need you know gas. It'd be what up around a couple of bucks a gallon. Um, but still, there will be people driving tractors, farmers. There'll be we as we know farmers, they got to heat their crops with yeah. propane. Um, people will need fuel. But nonetheless, 2030, we need a 220 dollar ton. Uh, price of carbon. So uh, and but the rebate goes back to consumers. And the rebate now, I don't know about you Scott, but I filled up my tax run this year and I got, I don't know, four or five hundred bucks was my quote carbon tax rebate as an Ontario mm. taxpayer. It could be as much as three or four thousand dollars per person uh, by the time we get to twenty thirty. And that's where we see this effect of a tax i don't want to pay comes in and now if the tax is significant enough there is some super real incentives financially for any player in the economy to avoid the tax and still get the rebate
0: yeah good point so
4: if i'm if i'm driving an electric vehicle first i'm not paying two three four five six thousand dollars a year in fuel costs and b i'm getting a four thousand dollar tax break uh, on my income tax now, that's got to take a politician to sell that, and we come back to politics. So in the election campaign, I'm certain I ask, I know people ask Justin Trudeau, hey, your carbon tax max is out at 50 bucks a ton. And there's experts that say it's got to be 220 bucks a ton. Almost out of time we're here, here, David. David. We're, we're, yeah, Where's he going to go? And he hasn't answered that question uh, yet. So we need some more honesty from our politicians on this.
0: Well said. David Aiken has been with us. Honesty and accounting is missing from every major party's climate change policy. David Aiken from Global News. Make sure you're watching tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Thank you, David.